My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. It's this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily in America. I still get chills when I hear her voice. Hamer spoke about voter suppression, state-sanctioned violence. To this very day, we are seeing the attacks on the Voting Rights Act. Every day we put on the news another person of color killed by the police. All of these concerns that Hamer raised are ones that we have to be paying attention to. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, her story and Keisha Blaine on human rights champion, civil rights movement legend, Fannie Lou Hamer. First, the news. I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. We know how Congresswoman Maxine Waters has been smeared and vilified for her courageous stand against institutionalized racism and sexism of the American scene. We know how, if there was ever an election that was stolen, it was what should have been Stacey Abrams's gubernatorial win in Georgia. We know of the unbound police brutality that led to the deaths of Sandra Bland and Breonna Taylor. We know the lives soured by circumstance. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. But what do we know of Fannie Lou Hamer, whose life experience embodied every indignity imaginable and who stands in legacy, mother and spirit of today's black women still paying the price for an American reckoning not yet won? With us on the show today is Keisha Blaine, professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, MSNBC contributor, and with Ibram X. Kendi, whose books on anti-racism have literally changed the language and the way we speak of the American experience. She is co-editor of the New York Times number one bestseller, 400 Souls. Her new book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Keisha Blaine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. How did you first encounter Fannie Lou Hamer and why now, almost 50 years after her death, have you written this book about her? I first learned about Fannie Lou Hamer uh, as a senior in college. And at the time I was majoring uh, in history and Africana studies, I was so surprised that it took me so long uh, to finally encounter this courageous Black woman. And at the time, I was so moved by the encounter with Hamer. I was moved by her story. I was moved uh, by her passion, her drive. Uh, and it really uh, transformed my life then. I did not imagine that I would end up writing a book on Hamer. But over the last few years, I've been returning to Hamer, uh, particularly because I've been teaching courses on the civil rights movement. Uh, and every time I read Hamer's words, I'm so inspired by them. And I just saw so much wisdom uh, in her words, uh, so much uh, that I think we can learn from her. I wanted to write a book that would not only introduce people to Hamer for those who are unfamiliar, but for those who even know about Hamer, I wanted to write a book that would center her ideas uh, and, and force us all uh, to listen to Hamer and to draw upon her words and her um, experiences uh, as a way to strategize uh, for how to address a number of social challenges that we're facing today. Do you remember what the moment was in her life that was your first connection and that first encounter? Yes, it was Hamer's speech at the Democratic National Convention in August of 1964. It was such an electrifying speech. Uh, it's a speech that uh, to this day, if you listen to it, uh, it's hard not to stop in your, in, in your tracks. So, you know, whatever you're doing, it's hard not to stop, uh, pause and, and listen to uh, just the power behind it. It, it. it was the kind of speech that transformed uh, every single person who heard it and not surprisingly, 
we're able to still talk about it uh, today because it left a lasting mark. Um, I think it electrified the nation. Uh, it terrified uh, the president at the time, Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, it, it will go down in history and remain, I think, one of the most powerful speeches ever delivered at the DNC. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. I had attended a voter registration workshop, was returning back to Mississippi. I was carried to the county jail. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigga? They beat her I don't know how long. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him Roosevelt. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me, by orders from the state highway patrolman, for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on my left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. My dress had worked up high. I pulled my dress down, and he pulled my dress back up. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily? because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Keisha, her voice, her demeanor, what you knew it took her to get there, I still get chills, literally, I, I just felt it when mm -hmm. I thought about that speech. How does it affect you today? It affects me deeply. Uh, every time I hear Hamer utter those words, is this America? I ask myself the same question. I think uh, just over the last few months, we have certainly asked ourselves the question, is this America? And I think it forces us to think about the core values um, and ideals of the nation. Um, what do we actually believe? What do we stand for? These are questions that we have to be asking ourselves. And if indeed uh, this is a democracy, and if indeed this is a nation that stands for um, equality and justice, then we have to make some radical changes. And I think Hamer's message at the DNC in, in 1964 remains a message that we have to listen to today uh, because unfortunately we're facing Still, the, the challenges that Hamer uh, endured, Hamer spoke about voter suppression. Hamer spoke about state-sanctioned violence. Um, to this very day, we are at a moment where we are now seeing the attacks on the Voting Rights Act. We are now um, constantly, every day we put on the news, another uh, Black person, another person of color um, killed by the police. And, and so I think all of these concerns that Hamer raised at the convention are ones that we have to be paying attention to. And so like you, I still get chills when I hear her voice. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, and especially with all it took her to 
get to that day. Would you read something from the book for us, please? I will read an excerpt from the introduction entitled, A Long Fight Ahead. We have a long fight, and this fight is not mine alone. But you are not free, whether you are black or white, until I am free. Because no man is an island to himself. And until I'm free in Mississippi, you are not free in Washington. You are not free in New York. Fanny Lou Hamer. I still remember the very first time I heard about Fanny Lou Hamer. It was in spring 2008 when I was a senior at Binghamton University and I was taking a course on the American Civil Rights Movement. I was blown away by what I read and the more I learned about Hamer's life and her political vision, however, it became clear to me why she hadn't received the same level of attention and acclaim as so many others. She didn't reflect the public's memory of the civil rights movement. Mainstream historical narratives on black social movements, then and now, privilege the ideas and political activities of men. Most Americans connect the civil rights movement and black power era with black men such as Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and Malcolm X, to mention a few. And when Black women leaders enter the conversation, the focus tends to be on the same prominent figures such as Rosa Parks, Coretta Scott King, and Angela Davis. Needless to say, these trailblazing leaders have all fundamentally shaped American society. Their work and lives should be deeply studied. However, the historical record is far richer and more interesting than many realize including a diverse array of activists and leaders from different classes in all walks of life. Fannie Lou Hamer's story captures the contributions of a Black woman sharecropper with limited formal education and limited material resources, but an all-consuming passion for social justice. Born in Mississippi on October the 6th, 1917, Hamer was the youngest of 20 children. The granddaughter of enslaved people, Hamer worked as a sharecropper for much of her life, a brutal practice closely mirroring the rhythms of slavery in the United States. From sunup to sundown, Hamer and her family cultivated cotton on a local plantation, expanding the fortunes of the white landowners as the Hamer family sank deeper and deeper into debt. The difficulties of Hamer's childhood extended well into adulthood when she struggled to make ends meet. Despite her limited material resources and the various challenges she endured as a Black woman living in poverty in Mississippi, Hamer committed herself to making a difference in the lives of others. Thank you. I don't know when I first encountered her. I do know that I watched um, that her testimony at the convention. I don't know if I watched it in real time because it's now been so long, but I do know mm -hmm. that I had the privilege to meet her in New York mm. a couple of times. I met her in New York and mm -hmm. indeed as a cub reporter, I was sent by Essence to to cover the National Women's Political Convention mm -hmm. of 1977, which took place just months after her death. And yeah. indeed, the first woman who goes to the mic is a Black woman, C. Dolores Tucker. And mm -hmm. she opens that convention with an evocation of the memory and the life legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary because one group of people was cheering and another was booing. Mm. But by the end of that convention, the mm. so-called minority plank was adapted by the convention by universal acclamation. Mm. So it was a journey, even just in in four days, the women's movement that had so negated 
black women um, went through a, a journey of three days to get from booing black women to recognizing the road we had walked to come to mm -hmm. that moment. So Keisha, tell us about your mother, your grandmother. How did you come to this story and this life from your own life history? Well, I think one of the reasons um, why I have gravitated uh, to Hamer's story and, and, and why I have really committed myself to, to writing these histories at that center, particularly working class and working poor Black women, uh, is because it is deeply personal. Uh, and I think often of my mother, who, uh, similar to, to Hamer, uh, had limited formal education. Uh, and as well as, as my grandmother, they did not have the opportunity to uh, pursue um, the degrees that I had an opportunity to pursue. They, they worked really hard and, and struggled, I think, uh, as, as many Black women um, have uh, to, I think, I would say find their voice because what is so difficult uh, and, and this is true even in Hamer's context, is how uh, in our broader society, and this is uh, something that, that I think continues to be a challenge, um, as you gave that example, there are so many spaces where um, as Black women we show up and we have something to offer, we have an idea, we have uh, something important to share, and not everyone is interested in hearing, not everyone values what we have to say uh, and and i think i see so many parallels between the experiences um, of my mom of my grandmother uh, and of hamer and i'm really struck by how often uh, there are all of these attempts to silence black women all of these attempts to limit our, our voice and uh and and block us from being able uh, to, to even use our, our gifts and, and talents. And I think what I find so inspirational uh, in Hamer's story is the ability to push beyond um, what, what others see as, as, you know, what others perceive as limitations, to push beyond the, you know, to, to push beyond those. Um, Hamer is someone who I talk about in the book, I think, some people did not even see, they couldn't even conceptualize, her, you know, that she would be a leader because she didn't fit the mold. Um, and yet she ends up being one of the most influential leaders of the civil rights movement. And she ends up um, speaking boldly, uh, her truth, speaking boldly about the experiences that she went through uh, and even though she made some people uncomfortable, uh, she ended up, I think, leaving um, just a lasting mark on, on so many lives. And, and so I, I think fundamentally, this book for me is, is deeply personal because it's my way of, of being able to say, it's time for us to pay attention. It's time for us to not dismiss people simply because um, of their socioeconomic background, simply because um, of uh, you know the limited material resources they might have, and understand that leaders, um, you know, come from all different backgrounds, and understand that uh, people who might have a different experience than than we do um, should not simply be dismissed, and and that we all have to listen and be open to to learning from others and and. And I hope that in reading this book, people will leave with that message. When we come back, more with our guest, Keisha Blaine, here on The Janice Adams Show. Her new book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. More after the break. We're back 
here on the Janice Adams Show, and today my guest on the show is Keisha Blaine. She is professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, MSNBC contributor, and with Ibram X. Kendi, co-author of the New York Times number one bestseller, 400 Souls. Keisha, right before the break, we were talking about your personal connection through your family and your personal witness, I will say, to the life and legacy of Fannie Lou Hamer. What I so love about your book is that as opposed to just a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer, it is really a biography of who we are through her and bringing Mm -hmm. it current so that we understand how it her life, the times in which she lived are still impacting us. And so the lessons that she left for us still have relevance to helping us get through these times, unfortunate and ridiculous as it is, that we should be going through these times all over again, 50 years after her death. But you write in the chapter that is called Tell It Like It Is, you write about the connection to Sandra Bland. Would you read that for us, please? Yes, tell it like it is. I'm going to tell you just like it is. There's so much hypocrisy in this society. And if we want America to be a free society, we have to stop telling lies. Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh my goodness. On July the 10th, 2015, Sandra Bland, a 28-year-old Black woman from Illinois, was driving alone in Prairie View, Texas. She was on her way to Prairie View A&M University, where she had recently secured a new position. According to Brian Encinia, the white Texas state trooper who stopped her that afternoon, Bland failed to signal as she moved from one lane to the next. What began as a routine traffic stop quickly escalated when Encinia asked Bland to extinguish her cigarette and immediately exit her car. In only a matter of minutes, Encinia tried to force Bland from the car as he called for backup. He then drew a taser and pointed it directly at Bland. I will light you up. Get out now. As Bland exited the car, tensions continued to escalate. Within an hour of driving down a quiet street in Prairie View, Bland was stopped, arrested, and later taken to a jail in Waller County, Texas. When she was found hanging in her cell three days later, the encounter, which had been recorded on the officer's dash cam, circulated widely across the nation. Thousands decried the circumstances that led to Bland's tragic death, questioning the stop, the detainment, and the officer's repeated threats. Although Bland's death was officially ruled a suicide, many rejected the pronouncement, and rightfully so. In addition to the many questions that still remain unanswered concerning Bland's short time in a Waller County jail cell, there was no denying that Insignia played a role in her death. Insignia's racial profiling, which motivated his decision to stop Bland in the first place, and his failure to de-escalate what should have been a routine traffic stop led to an unlawful arrest and created the environment that led to Bland's untimely death. Sandra Bland's life and the circumstances of her death cast a spotlight on one of the social issues that has dominated public discourse through the 21st century, state-sanctioned violence. Bland's encounter with Insignia was recorded and as a result garnered nationwide attention. Yet thousands of Black people in the United States have had similar experiences, tense exchanges with police officers that often amount to a death sentence. In a 2019 Los Angeles Times article, a group of researchers identified police violence as one of the leading causes of death for Black American men. 
While their research emphasized the experiences of Black men and boys, it also revealed that state-sanctioned violence imperils Black women and girls to a greater degree than white women. In the years before Bland's confrontation with law enforcement, countless Black women died in police custody, with many of their stories going unnoticed. For example, in December 2002, Niza Morris, a Black transgender woman, sustained a fatal head injury while being transported by three Philadelphia police officers. Although local activists worked to shed light on the tragic events of that evening, Morris's case, like so many cases of police violence against Black transgender people, failed to garner much national attention. In July 2015, the same month of Bland's death, several other Black women died in police custody, including Raynette Turner of Mount Vernon, New York, and 18-year-old Kendra Chapman of Homewood, Alabama. Weeks later, officers killed Maya Hall, a young Black transgender woman in Baltimore, after she made a wrong turn while driving on a parkway in Fort Meade. These are just a few of the recent cases of Black women whose lives were cut short by the police in the United States. The threat of violence Black Americans face each time they encounter a police officer today is no different from the fear of lynching Black people felt during each confrontation with a white officer during the Jim Crow era. And this violence was and is not limited to encounters with the police. Black Americans today also face violence at the hands of other agents of the state, including white medical professionals, who continue to treat their Black patients differently from patients of other racial groups. Fannie Lou Hamer lived with this fear of everyday public and private acts of violence while navigating the South. During the early 1960s, she used her growing visibility and national platform to share those experiences and denounce the actions of the police, as well as the white doctors who committed acts of violence against Black women through four sterilizations. For Hamer, one of the strategies for addressing the persistent problem of state-sanctioned violence was the use of public testimony as a mode of resistance and revelation. In this way, the act was driven by both personal and political motivations. A source of empowerment and healing, public testimony also provided a vehicle for Hamer to make her audience co-owners of trauma. Those who listened to Hamer's testimony bore witness to the pain and violence and were therefore transformed by the experience. In that excerpt, you cover so much. I mean, Sandra Bland, and yes, it it, it is, you know, just the way there is damn statistics and lies, there are laws unjust laws and white supremacist laws. And the idea that anyone can provoke someone's death, can create the circumstances of someone's death, even if it is a suicide, so-called, and then walk away as if to say, well, what did I have to do with that? There's mm -hmm. something fundamentally wrong with it, especially when we know that it is a pattern of behavior that is used to exonerate. Fannie mm -hmm. Lou Hamer's, um, you, you mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer and her speaking out about forced sterilization yeah. in an, in an area where they spoke so vehemently and even today are circumventing women's lives for a woman deciding that she does not want to bear a child mm -hmm. and have an abortion. Fannie Lou Hamer was a victim of forced sterilization, was she not? She was. Um, and this is in 1961. So one year before she joined the movement, Fannie Lou Hamer 
had been hospitalized uh, because she had a small uterine tumor, and this was a non-cancerous tumor. Um, and, and so it should have been a fairly simple procedure. The, the white doctor uh, performing the procedure, however, uh, decided to remove Hamer's uterus without her knowledge, uh, would not, without her permission. And as I talk about in the book, it, it, it's, it's such a traumatic experience already. Um, and to add insult to injury, he does not tell Hamer immediately after. Uh, he, Hamer, in fact, finds out about the forced sterilization through the Whisper Network because the doctor uh, was related uh, to the wife of the plantation owner where, where Hamer worked. Uh, and people were talking about what had happened to her. So she was completely devastated. And as I talk about in the book, she had been uh, trying you know, un unsuccessfully uh, to, to have children. And this, so this was such a, a painful experience for her. She confronted the doctor, demanded an answer, and he did not provide an answer. He did not provide an explanation. And one of the things that Hamer points out is that he didn't have to because this was unfortunately a common practice. It was a common practice, not only uh, in the in the hospital where, where Hamer had the procedure done in, in Mississippi, but it was quite common uh, across the South and also taking place you know, in cities across the nation where black and brown women and particularly impoverished black and brown women uh, would go in for various simple procedures and, and why doctors would um, perform these forced sterilizations, uh, taking it upon themselves to decide who they considered fit, and, and in this case, unfit for reproduction. And so Hamer uh, goes through this experience in 61, and she joins the movement in 62. Many people, I think, would understand uh, if Hamer decided to keep um, what had happened to her uh, a secret. She didn't have to talk about it, right? She could have chosen to have kept it to herself and, and simply, you know, outside of the people who already knew what had taken place, she could have left it there. But what is so powerful about Hamer is that once she became a civil rights activist and she started talking about voting rights, she started talking about the expansion of black political rights, uh, she, she understood that all of these were connected. She understood that the experience that she went through um, was not unique, that it was part of a troubling pattern and she believed that she could, in fact, uh, through public testimony, bring an end to the practice. Uh, she decided to speak about it boldly. She would talk about it as she traveled across the country. She would tell the story of this forced sterilization, what had happened to her. Uh, she would say it in front of medical professionals. She would, you know, she would let doctors know. Uh, and many people were shocked to hear Hamer's testimony. Uh, but one of the things that she argue was that she didn't just tell the story for herself. I mean, it was certainly a liberating aspect to it um, in a personal way, but more so she, she told the story because she wanted to uh, be a witness and speak on behalf of others who were going through this painful um, experience. And so it's quite extraordinary, I think, in, in seeing how Hamer drew the connections. And not surprisingly, it, it became a focal point uh, in the women's liberation movement, many activists would later say uh, that it's Hamer's powerful um, decision to speak out against forced sterilization um, ends up uh, inspiring them in their own activism. This is certainly true for Barbara Smith, who I talk about in the book as one of the founders of the Kambahi River Collective. You know, when you are speaking, I am once again um, going inward. Mm and remembering some of my own experiences, but one in particular was when my twin daughters were born in the North. Mm -hmm. I remember um, being taken into the nursery to see them. And um, there was a nurse standing over the babies in the nursery and they were supposedly training the mothers to handle their babies and to nurse their babies. Mm -hmm. And one nurse said to this young mother, go ahead and drop the kid. We could do with a few less of you people anyway. Mm. 
And while it can be dismissed that that was oh, one crazy person, you have just demonstrated in your mm. rendering an analysis of what Fannie Lou Hamer went through, that it wasn't. This was part of the systemic view mm -hmm. of what you do. I think it's also people important for people to know that not just in the quote, evil South, but in the very mm -hmm. good North, um, mm -hmm. hospitals were segregated. And well mm -hmm. into the 1970s, black doctors could not have quote, hospital privileges mm -hmm. in Northern American hospitals. And because of the economics, it was so difficult to even have a black hospital. So you have black doctors being trained. You have Meharry Medical. You have Howard University's hospital. Um, mm -hmm. You have Dr. Dan in, in Chicago. But our ability to go to black medical professionals is deliberately limited um and circumscribed and then the other thing is that recently in new york um people rallied thank goodness to take the monument out of central park of that man who yeah. considered the father of gynecology mm -hmm. who was buying enslaved women to chop up in the name of scientific inquiry and not even bothering to use then known anesthesias. Right. That's the, that's the history we're talking about here. That's the legacy, mm -hmm. you know, and I, as I listen to you, I'm saying, yes, Fannie Lou Hamer told us for her and for all, but she also lifted the lid on the silence that we were trained to feel about discussing anything having to do with our bodies, especially yes. our violation. Absolutely. And, you know, and the same is true, I think, when it, when it came to what Hamer endured in 63 uh, in Winona, as I talk about in the book, this is another pivotal and painful experience for her where she's you know, arrested and jailed along with uh, other activists. Uh, all because they are you're trying to uh, encourage people to vote. I mean, they, this, is, this is supposedly the crime that was being committed. When we come back, more with our guest, Keisha Blaine. She is the author of the new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And indeed, we will be talking about that pivotal incident in Winona, Mississippi, an incident 50 years ago that we are seeing people put the mechanism into effect to repeat today. More here on the Janice Adams Show after the break. show with our guest, oh my goodness, Keisha Blaine. And the story she brings to us is the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, a giant of the civil rights movement, a woman who changed things in terms of the way we talked about the experiences of Black women, but who changed the way Black women and other women talked about themselves through her life lesson. Keisha's book, the subtitle, Hamer's Enduring Message to America, and those messages are what she brings out. Messages not in a didactic form, but in an engaging form that allow us to see how linked we are to the past and whether history repeats itself or not. And unfortunately, too much of America's worst history is repeating itself right now. But even if we don't look at it that way, Fannie Lou Hamer was just an extraordinary woman who was forced to live in extreme poverty 
by the racist system of Mississippi, but whose integrity and sheer, um, I'm just looking for, for, for the word, her character, her dignity, mm -hmm. her spirit could not be bound by economics. And so she still speaks to us today. Tell us about that incident, that pivotal incident in Winona, Mississippi, that changes her life and our history. Uh, in June 1963, Fannie Lou Hamer was traveling with several other activists. They were traveling from South Carolina uh, to Mississippi. They were heading back home uh, after, her, uh, after having completed a voter registration workshop. Uh, and they were, uh, they decided to stop. It was a rest stop. Several people needed to use the restroom. Others needed to grab a bite to eat. And Fannie Lou Hamer uh, stayed on the bus initially. She was waiting for uh, her friends to return. And when she looked out the window, she saw police officers um, grabbing and, and arresting several um, of the activists. So she got out of the bus, she got off of the bus to find out what was going on. And within minutes, an officer grabbed Hamer, started kicking Hamer, um, arrested Hamer, uh, and uh, took her to um, a prison cell uh, in Winona. Uh, and this is a, a very traumatic uh, moment uh, in Hamer's life uh, because one of the things she talks about is that not only uh, did she uh, experience a brutal beating at the hands of police officers, uh, but police officers also uh, forced black prisoners who were there uh, to beat Hamer as well. Uh, when Hamer um, walks out of that prison cell and, and it requires just a, an array of, of, of help from local activists um, who, who, who come together to try to get her out as well as uh, the other activists. But when she comes out of that, that prison cell, uh, Hamer uh, has a number of physical ailments. Uh, she has uh, permanent kidney damage, um, a, a blood clot in her eye. Uh, and Hamer um, had walked previously with, with a limp um, and that particular beating worsened the limp. Uh, and so this was physically um, devastating. It was on her body, but even more so, I think, psychologically. Uh, Hamer took several weeks uh, to, to recover. Uh, when she talks about the beating she endured initially, she didn't reveal that she had also been a victim of a sexual assault. Once uh, she became comfortable to do so, she started talking about that Winona experience and started talking about the way that she was inappropriately touched um, by others. And, and similar to the way that she spoke about the forced sterilization, I think it was Hamer constantly sending the message that even as you talk about civil rights and black political rights, um, that when it comes to black women's experiences, all that she had endured, that they're all connected. So you could not simply talk about um, the, the violence insofar, you know, you couldn't just talk about racial violence. You also had to talk about sexual violence. Uh, uh, you had to talk about, you know, uh, state sanctioned violence and, and to do so you also had to talk about what doctors were doing as much as you were talking about what police officers were doing. And so Hamer, I think, is someone who had a way of pulling all the threads together. And not surprisingly, it's one of the reasons why I talk about her as a foremother of intersectionality. She understood the importance of seeing um, all the overlapping systems of oppression that shape Black women's lives. In the last months of Malcolm X's death, he invited Fannie Lou Hamer to bring students from young people that she was um, mentoring from Mississippi to New York City. Um, it was a wonderful moment in of the two coming together. I think of that moment as well because of the empowering sense that each had of themselves and what they could do for others. What is the moment in her life that brings a smile to your face? It's actually um, the moments where she talks about her relationship with her husband, Perry Pap Hamer. 
in the process of writing the book, uh, every time I came across an interview uh, where someone would ask Hamer about her husband, uh, she would just light up and she would talk about their love and affection. And there's one particular interview that she gave where she spoke about how much she enjoyed dancing with him. And whenever they would have an opportunity, they, they would uh, go out and, and dance together. And uh, that brings a smile to my face because I think uh, certainly based on, you know, as we've been talking today, Hamer endured so much, so much pain and, and violence and, and heartache. Uh, but I think it's, it's such a beautiful thing to reflect on those quiet moments um, with, with her husband, um, with uh, her children. She went on to adopt several children in her lifetime and, um, and she just loved them all so dearly and enjoyed being with them. I think that brings a smile to my face. Keisha Blaine, thank you so much for writing this history of us through the story of Fannie Lou Hamer. The book is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. What is the final message that you want us to hear of Fannie Lou Hamer that we can take away with us today? Uh, I will read uh, just a few um, paragraphs from the last chapter, which I think helps us see how Hamer's message and how her legacy uh, continues to live on. This is a section from the conclusion of the book uh, entitled, We've Got to Do the Work. On Saturday, August 19, 2020, Kamala Harris confidently walked across the stage at the Democratic National Convention at the Wisconsin Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When Harris took to the stage at the 2020 Democratic National Convention, the historical importance of the moment was undeniable. In only a matter of months, she would become the first Black woman and first person of Indian descent to be elected vice president on a winning party ticket. On the evening of August 19th, however, she stood before a live and televised audience to formally accept the nomination and express her gratitude to those who made it possible. Greetings, America. It is truly an honor to be speaking with you, Harris began. That I am here tonight is a testament to the dedication of generations before me, women and men who believed so fiercely in the promise of equality, liberty, and justice for all. Reflecting on the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, Harris acknowledged the courageous women who had organized, testified, rallied, marched, and fought, not just for their vote, but for a seat at the table. These women, she noted, provided a source of inspiration for us all to pick up the torch and fight on. Women like Mary Church Terrell and Mary McLeod Bethune, Fannie Lou Hamer and Diane Nash, Constance Baker Motley and Shirley Chisholm. We're not often told their stories, she added, but as Americans, we all stand on their shoulders. By evoking Fannie Lou Hamer that evening, Kamala Harris reinforced the activist intellectual's enormous significance in shaping United States history. Alongside a cadre of other courageous Black American women, Hamer, the Mississippi sharecropper turned activist, occupied a meaningful place in Harris's personal and political narrative. Far beyond offering a source of inspiration, Hamer's ideas helped to frame Harris's political vision that evening. After highlighting her family's history and the values and lessons she learned from her relatives along the way, Harris turned her attention to the state of affairs in the United States. She emphasized some of the most pressing national concerns, including the failures of the Trump administration, high unemployment, and the coronavirus pandemic. Though she acknowledged how the virus devastated the lives of millions of Americans, Harris underscored how structural racism fueled health disparities in the United States. While this virus touches us all, let's be honest, it is not an equal opportunity offender, 
Harris remarked. Black, Latino, and indigenous people are suffering and dying disproportionately. This is not a coincidence, she further explained. It is the effect of structural racism. Pointing to disparities and inequities in all sectors of American society, including healthcare, education, and technology, housing and employment, and policing and criminal justice, Harris called on Americans to take an active role in dismantling structural racism. And let's be clear, she noted, there is no vaccine for racism. We've got to do the work. Evoking Hamer for the second time that evening, Harris insisted that because of our linked fate, all Americans must join the fight to create a more inclusive democracy. We've got to do the work to fulfill that promise of equal justice under law. Because none of us are free until all of us are free. Keisha Blaine, thank you so much. Is there anything that you wanted to discuss that I haven't raised? No, I think we ended up covering everything and more. So this has been a lovely conversation. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Keisha and Blaine and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show. For the podcast, links to our guest, her book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's enduring message to America, and to Mrs. Hamer's full testimony to the Rules Committee of the 1964 Democratic National Convention, visit my website, janosadams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Robayo, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what... <laughs>